companies, as they move to subscription-based business models, they now have this massive new thing they've got to figure out. How do I make sure my customers have been onboarded properly, that they're adopting the products and services, they're getting value, they're going to stay with me, they're going to grow and spend more money over time. And we thought that would create a whole new industry, and it turns out it has. It's created a new job, customer success manager, which according to LinkedIn now is the sixth most promising job in the world. And it's created a whole new kind of strategy for companies, which is not just about sales and marketing, but making sure your customers are successful. That's Nick Mehta, CEO of Gainsight, a pioneer in the emerging customer success sector. Nick is a tech industry veteran and a respected leader. He's been named a top SaaS CEO three years in a row by the Software Report. And he's been a finalist for Ernst & Young's prestigious Entrepreneur of the Year Award. In December of 2020, he led Gainsight through a private company acquisition by Vista Equity Partners, a deal that put the company firmly in unicorn territory with a valuation of $1.1 billion. Nick is also hugely passionate about company culture. While at Gainsight, he's helped to build an award-winning culture that is frequently recognized in numerous lists as a great place to work. In this episode, Nick talks about the skyrocketing growth of customer success as a category, the practical aspects of how to turn customers into advocates, and why having a human-first mindset at work is important for customers and employees alike. This is Daniel Sachs, co-CEO of AppDirect, and it's time to decode customer success. Welcome to Decoding Digital, a podcast for innovators looking to thrive in the digital economy. I'm your host, Daniel Sachs, and I'll sit down with other founders, CEOs, and changemakers to decode the trends that are transforming the way we work. Let's decode. Nick, thanks for joining me today on Decoding Digital. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Not only have you created an incredible tool to really transform and help customer success executives thrive, you've also been part of a movement, which is really the subscription economy and the customer success movement to really help optimize customer experience, customer lifetime value, and ultimately delight end customers with a better digital experience. Let's take that back to the beginning. Tell us about your first experiences with subscription services and how customer success emerged. Yeah, absolutely. So my experience, probably everyone has their first time that you understand that this is going to be different, right? Like, so for me, I'd worked at Symantec and in some of their software that they would sell that was sold to the enterprise on-premise, meaning the customer would pay all their money up front and you know, they would kind of be basically stuck with the software, whether they're using it or not, they paid for it. And that was great. That model worked great. And obviously, a lot of businesses did very well. I went to run my first business that it was a subscription business. It was a company called Live Office. And I ran it and then eventually sold the company. But in running that company, I came in with the old mindset. And some of you might have gone through this transition yourselves, where you went this old mindset where you build a product and you sell it. And then you move on to the next customer, you sell them, you move on to the next customer kind of more transactional type model to this model where I realized, oh my gosh, our customers are with us. And they, every month we have to re-earn their business and they can either stay with us or they can go. Whether we're delivering value, whether they're happy, whether they're getting the outcomes they're looking for, that's what customer success is all about. So I learned this kind of on the job in my last company. 
And I saw how it changes a business because you still have to build great products and you still have to market and sell them. That's still very hard. But you've got this whole third thing you got to do and make your customers successful. And we thought this creates a whole new opportunity. And that's why we launched Gainsight in 2013, seven and a half years ago. And the idea was basically we thought that companies, as they move to subscription-based business models, they now have this massive new thing they've got to figure out. How do I make sure my customers have been onboarded properly, that they're adopting the products and services, they're getting value, they're going to stay with me, they're going to grow and spend more money over time. And we thought that would create a whole new industry. And it turns out it has. It's created a new job, customer success manager, which according to LinkedIn now is the sixth most promising job in the world. And it's created a whole new kind of strategy for companies, which is not just about sales and marketing, but making sure your customers are successful. So obviously, subscription business models have really transformed the way businesses adopt services. And I go back to the founding of AppDirect, for example. My great-grandparents had a furniture store in Niagara Falls, Canada. We had to shut it down. And we really attributed that to the lack of access to technology. But back in the day, I remember maybe when I was 10 years old or 13 years old or something, we adopted a service called Profit Systems. And it was that on-premise service that you talked about. But we had to mortgage the store. It cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to buy the software. And there was no idea of customer success. And it worked well for a couple of years, but then the software became obsolete. And that whole CapEx investment kind of went to nothing and it really hurt us. So tell me, what do you measure from the onset when it comes to customer success and subscription business models? And how important is it to delight the customer from the beginning? Yeah, absolutely. So what happens is many of you might be in the process of either moving to a subscription business model or launching a subscription business or maybe you acquired a subscription business. But you know, usually what happens is you kind of have this new thing and you kind of keep running it the way you've always run your businesses, right? You've got your sales and your marketing and you build your products and you have bookings and profit and so on. And those things don't go away. But there's this kind of tsunami that happens in every business where all of a sudden you've got all these customers that now are either renewing or not, right? Some businesses you start and you have longer term contracts. So it's almost like you push that problem out and all of a sudden it hits you where two or three years in, you've got all these customers that are renewing and that are kind of thinking about whether they're getting value or not. So for a lot of companies, they don't actually truly become a subscription business in terms of the operating model till they get those first wave of renewals where they've got to think about things totally differently. And what they end up doing is they say there's these kind of six key performance indicators that matter in thinking about basically customer success and this new subscription business model. So there's three that are what we call the lagging indicators that are kind of the end goals, and then three leading indicators. And these are kind of on every management dashboard of any subscription business that's strong. The first one is what people call gross retention rate, which is basically saying, okay, I've got $1,000 worth of spend across all my customers per year. You know, let's say it's 10 customers spending $100 a year. Okay, great. Out of those same 10 customers a year later, without adding on any new services, so just the stuff they've been spending on, are they spending you know, $1,000 still? Are they spending $900? Are they spending $1,100? And so basically, have they contracted or grown out of that existing spend? So that's called gross retention rate. That's the number one. Number two is what people call net retention rate, which is saying, okay, we should count the things that they're expanding as well, because they might have bought new services. They may have added new users, and that can be, therefore, more than 100%. The third one is, I don't want to just keep my customers and grow them. I want them to be great advocates so other people will want to buy my services and buy my subscriptions. And that's something most people would be familiar with, with something called net promoter score. So those are the three kind of end goals most people optimize for. And then there's three leading indicators that you can think of as, okay, how do I get there? The first one is kind of a measure of the adoption of my service. Are people 
using it? Are they using the features and functions? Are they using the advanced capabilities? The second one is kind of what's that health of that customer overall? And a lot of people look at a lot of different signals like the adoption, the satisfaction, their onboarding experience, their technical support experience, their billing, add all that together into kind of almost like a predictor of their likelihood to churn or to stay or to grow. And then finally, what's my efficiency in serving these customers? Because what you're ending up doing in customer success is you're hiring people. And you don't want to just throw people at the problem. You want to automate. And so how much do I have to spend to retain a dollar of revenue? So just like you might look at the cost to acquire a customer, what's the cost to retain a customer? So you've got these three kind of lagging indicators, gross retention rate, net retention rate, net promoter score, and then three leading indicators, adoption, health score, and then my cost of retention. How do you help the customer get on board? And then how do you help them get more value over time? That shift requires a total different org shift in the way that you think about structure, incentive for your team. Is it the same sales rep that goes on it? How do you talk about that evolution when a company first has primarily a sales force focusing on bringing in new clients, but then making that shift to an ongoing relationship? Totally. Yeah, you're right. It does shift. And that's one basic concept I'd give you. Um, I'll click in your specific question is that in the future, kind of your product, whatever you make in your organization, your subscription product is the combination of whatever the physical or software or technology or information product is and the customer experience together, right? Your product is that all together. And so your product, I'm sure, is evolving every year. You're adding new features, you're evolving it, you're moving into the cloud. And therefore, your customer success and customer experience should evolve every year. So it's changing is a feature, not a bug. It should keep evolving, right? And so one year, you might be focused on getting customers to deploy, the next year, getting them to engage and so on. And that means the organizational model will evolve too. And to your point, one of the things that evolves a lot is kind of who owns what, right? So in kind of a pre-customer success model, you often have a salesperson or a channel partner who kind of owns the relationship and kind of everything, right? That's the one person. But, you know, typically the downside is they often were very focused on the transaction. And beyond that, the customer didn't always get the attention they wanted. And there might have been a reactive support organization that would respond to issues. And that was it. It was really up to the customer to get value. So what people typically have done is they've kind of said, okay, starting out, I'm going to create this customer success team and role. And their basic job is make sure the customer is getting value, make sure they're adopting, make sure they're staying with me. The salesperson, um, there's a few different models. One is the salesperson owns all the commercial relationship and the CS person is driving the adoption of value. And that's kind of one type of model. A different model is the salesperson who closes the deal hands off to the CSM who handles everything after the sale. That's a second type of model. And that works particularly well in kind of SMB transactional type businesses. A third type of model is the salesperson who closes the deal hands off to a different salesperson who manages that commercial relationship going forward. Some people call that an account manager or they use the analogy of a farming rep. And then they work with the CSM going forward. So you do have these different models where you kind of, depending on the situation, if you tend to sell an enterprise big ticket type product with a lot of upsell going forward, often that same sales rep who's selling is the same one managing going forward and the CSM is focused on adoption and value. But if you have a product that's a little bit more transactional and you want the rep going off to the next new customer, then sometimes you'll have a sales rep close the deal and then hand off to a CSM to manage going forward. You mentioned briefly that the traditional transactional model would be you'd have a sales rep or you'd have someone in the channel they'd be selling and they'd be responsible all in. Obviously, channel sales are super important today more than ever. But how does customer success get enabled through the channel? 
That's a great question. And it's probably one of the hottest topics right now in the customer success industry, because initially a lot of the early customer success programs were focused on the direct business. Obviously, companies like Salesforce, the majority of their revenue is direct, right? A lot of the kind of born in the cloud companies are just newer to the channel and you know, your company's helping them get there. But the early days of customer success were very much direct. But now you have companies like Cisco and like VMware and like other big companies that are very channel-oriented adopting customer success. And they all started with their direct customers. But as you know very well, 90% of a lot of these big companies, business goes to the channel, at least on a volume numbers basis. And so what's happening is these big companies are saying, we need our channel partners to become extensions of our customer success. And there's kind of two different things that these companies are doing. One is they're enabling their channel to actually deliver customer success to the customer. Cisco is a good example. They created an advanced certification that if you want to get those advanced rebates and things like that, you basically, as a channel partner of Cisco, have to actually create a CSM program, a customer success manager program, train people on it, designate on it. And actually, one of the tiers of the program, you even have to buy software like Gainsight to kind of manage that customer success program. So we now have a number of Cisco resellers that actually use Gainsight as well. So that's kind of one model is you're enabling your channel to actually deliver customer success by sharing those best practices, technology, content, and kind of almost monitoring them, making sure they're doing it and doing it in partnership. The second thing that we're seeing people do is they're applying this customer success concept to the way they manage the channel. So in other words, I'm Cisco. My partners are actually my customers as well. And so they're doing things, Dan, like we talked about of what's the health score of my partner and what are the risk in my partner and what's the retention of my partner, et cetera. So those are the two things we're seeing. Got it. And it seems like at Gainsight, the technology obviously would be relevant in both cases. Is there a difference though? Do you have a partner health score versus a customer health score or can you apply it in a similar way? Yeah, you definitely do. You know, one of our other customers that mentions VMware and they have a division called Cloud Health Technologies, which is sort of uh, helps companies measure cloud consumption. And it's sold through a lot of cloud-oriented MSPs. And so they actually are basically using Gainsight to manage the health of those partners. And so there's a partner health score, but then they have the customer health score for the partner's customers. So it's a little confusing. You got two different tiers here. And so what they do is the partner managers at this division of VMware use Gainsight to manage the partner health. You know, is this partner trained and enabled? Are their customers successful? Are they using the products, et cetera? But then they expose the health scores for all the partner's customers to the partner through Gainsight. And then that partner now logs in and says, okay, well, these customers are healthy. These ones are at risk. We need to go run some programs together. So yeah, it's very much kind of two layers to customer success with partners. Got it. And you spoke about the subscription model and how that applies to technology companies. But what we're seeing is that more and more industries are building subscription business models, whether it's telecoms who are adopting digital services recurring or whether it's traditional manufacturing companies. I think everything could be delivered as a subscription in the future. Tell us about those non-tech companies that are trying to go through this transformation and institute customer success. Absolutely. Yeah, I'll share a couple of stories with you. So, you know, we just closed a very large telecommunications company, a B2B telco that basically sells to lots of small businesses and enterprises, telco services like internet connectivity and things like that. And they basically have this huge, you know, multi-thousand person account management team and sales team that kind of were run in that traditional model. You know, sell a customer, you sell them more stuff and, and by the great people and everything else. But what was happening is their services were becoming more digital. They were reselling cloud services. Their customers were thinking of them more as a kind of a software company. They wanted to think of themselves as a software company. 
they went to study what are the things that software companies are doing. They hired McKinsey. They kind of looked at what does it look like to become more of a digital business? And one of the work streams that came out was turning this giant sales and account management team, kind of breaking it up. So you've got now a customer success team. And so they actually kind of rebadged thousands of people as now CSMs and launched kind of this thing and then working with Gainsight on the technology to operationalize it. So that's an example in telco. Another example in business services, ADP, big payroll company, which as most people know, kind of payroll is becoming more digital. There's more HR technology. ADP has a lot of great HR technology. They wanted to convert that account management and client services team into more proactive customer success team because they wanted the customers to be using some of those digital products and services that they had been innovating in. So they started working with Gainsight on that. A third example, Rockwell Automation is a manufacturing company in Wisconsin, and they build factory floor equipment. And that equipment, traditional model, will sell the equipment, and they'll sell a maintenance contract with that equipment. And the maintenance contract is recurring by nature. But you didn't think of it as a subscription. You just thought of it as a, like a warranty, right? But as the equipment started getting fitted with more sensors and kind of IoT, Internet of Things technology, that allowed Rockwell to kind of see what customers were doing and provide more proactive services that looked more like subscriptions. And so they converted their kind of service sales team that would basically sell your warranty services into a customer success team to make sure customers were getting value. And then the final example I'll share is in the world of medical device world. So there's a company called ResMed and they make residential in-home medical equipment. It's a big company. They basically make things like what's called a CPAP device, which is if you have sleep apnea, and you're sleeping and you're having a hard time, and it helps you breathe through the night. It's a very important stuff. In fact, they actually used their energy and time to help make ventilators for the pandemic. So very much in like the heart of just keeping us all healthy. And in this business, they sell this equipment through a channel. This channel is called home medical equipment. So the people that come to your home and set up that CPAP device, right? So you go to the doctor, doctor says you have sleep apnea. They recommend you to a home medical equipment company. They come to deliver to your house. They build an insurance company. Very complicated, right? But that business, they started retrofitting with cloud services. So they have a service now that a patient can have that lets them track basically their sleep, right? Because you can imagine you have this device in your house and want to make sure I'm sleeping well. And so now they want to make sure that patient is actually using the service well. They want to make sure the partner is getting the patient the service that they need and setting it up well. And it's all a subscription. And so they need to make sure that that's all delivered and getting value and going to stay with you. And they use Gainsight for that. So, you know, whether it's medical equipment, whether it's business services, whether it's telecommunication, manufacturing, as I'm preaching to the choir, everyone's moving to subscription as you do a great job of enabling. And as they do that, they can't afford to just sell to the customer and leave. They've got to make sure they're going to be successful. How as an industry do we breed more customer success managers? And if you're an executive that's looking to hire these people, where do you find them? Within customer success, there's different flavors. And you probably have seen this in your own business, Dan. Like there's different types of CSMs. And I kind of, in my own head, have this sort of model where I say, okay, some CSMs are kind of the domain experts. They've worked in the shoes of that customer domain. You know, for example, Workday, the HR software company, some of their CSMs came out of HR. They worked in HR so they can go talk to the customer and commiserate with them, right? Some CSMs are technical experts. They really know the product inside and out. For example, a lot of security companies, they want the CSMs to know the security domain really well. Some CSMs are process and kind of consulting experts. They know how to drive change in a company, particularly if you have big customers, you got to get them to change. Some CSMs are all about like organization and execution, attention to detail because they just have a lot of customers. And so what that means is where CSMs come from might be different, right? In the first example, domain experts, they might come from your customers where you're bringing them in and actually then training them on your business, but they know the domain. 
in that second example where it's technical, they might come from your technical support team, or they might come from your sales engineering team or your engineering team. In that third example where they're kind of really consultative, they might, in some of the higher end CSMs might come from a McKinsey or a Bain or a BCG or an Accenture or a Deloitte or a PwC, some of these big consulting firms. And then finally, in that fourth example of the kind of hyper-organized process, execution kind of person, they might be people that have grown up from jobs like inside sales or other areas, and they're just really good at executing, right? So what we believe needs to happen to enable this is for all of us to be pretty open-minded to kind of create more feeder jobs that kind of fuel into this and then really focus on enablement. Just like in sales, salespeople don't just magically appear. They start as maybe sales development reps or business development reps, and they grow into inside sales and then field sales. There needs to be this career pathing. And just as one kind of small plug, we created this program because we feel like in technology in particular, technology hasn't been great at creating diversity and letting lots of people in. Unfortunately, it's been very, very limited, even though technology creates so much wealth, it's wealth accruing to a very small percentage of the population. And so we created a program to bring underrepresented minorities into customer success, which is a big challenge in the US is not enough underrepresented minorities in tech, where we bring them from other walks of life we train them on this field and then we bring them into kind of early jobs inside companies. And so we actually have that program. It's called CSU, C-S-Y-O-U. If you go to our website, you can see it. We have dozens and dozens of companies participate. We've raised millions of dollars now for this program. But that's just an example of how we can kind of expand the funnel and basically bring more people into these amazing jobs and help our businesses at the same time. It's truly incredible. And yeah, call out for everyone to go to the website. We'll put it in the show notes but really amazing. So I want to take a second to switch gears because at Gainsight, you've created an incredible culture and you're known for that culture and that's helped drive what you do. And it's not only about your own team, but clearly you've impacted your customers and their organizations and it really helped to create this customer success movement. So what advice would you give to people at organizations on culture and how to really thrive? So, I mean, I think everyone's culture has got to be authentic to yourself. So it's hard to give any generic advice because I think the most important thing is don't create a culture that's somebody else's culture that just sounds good or you read a blog post or you read a book and those things sounded good. That's the worst kind of culture is the one that was just copied and is not truly you. But I can say that for us, what motivates us, and I think it's kind of rubbed off on some others, is this idea that there's sort of this mental model many people had of business, which is it's all about business that's separate from us as human beings. And business is about being business-like and it's not about being personal and it's not about your feelings. It's about being ruthless and closing the deal and transactions and all that. There's a lot of movies and books that have sort of reinforced that notion. And we think that we kind of got a little lost, at least from our vantage point, where business was created for human beings. It doesn't exist for its own sake. And so businesses exist to serve humans and you can't forget the human in business. So we talked about this idea of human first business, which is thinking about all of your stakeholders, whether it's your employees, whether it's the employees' families, whether it's the customers, the community around you, and even your investors, all as human beings first, and really kind of putting that mindset. So just as some examples, it shows up in the sort of tougher situations when the employee tells you they're leaving, is your first reaction that they're betraying you and that they're dead to you, or is your first reaction, congratulations, that's awesome that I'm so excited for your new job. And Thank you for all you've done for us. And what's your first reaction there, right? And by the way, I haven't always had the perfect first reaction, but I've learned to try to do the latter, right? Another example would be you have a competitor and you're talking about them internally. Are you talking about them as like they're evil and they're bad or just that they're human beings just trying to do the same thing you are? You have a customer who is really demanding at a call 
And are you talking about how that customer is so bad and so mean? Or are you saying, gosh, you know, they must be having a tough time right now. I wonder if something's going on in their personal life. How can we be more empathetic to them? So it's really about how you react to the stakeholders around you. Are you humanizing them or are you dehumanizing them? So for us, that's been really powerful. And then the second thing we've learned is that we are very open about this culture and this kind of human first mindset with our customers, with our community. We talk about it all the time. And I think that like one thing that's really powerful is when your culture isn't just your own culture, it's the culture you bring to your customers. And it's all kind of one big thing. I think those walls between what the company is, who the customers are, what the community is, all kind of are coming down in most businesses. And you can kind of see this in our consumer lives, right? Nowadays, when we buy from a brand, we're sort of affiliating with the culture of that brand. Nike has a specific brand and there's things that they value. And some people like it, some people don't. And the people that buy from them probably tend to affiliate with that brand, right? And so any kind of brand that you work with, you kind of end up adopting a bit of their values and culture. And I think that that's true even if you're selling to other businesses. Amazing. And then just to conclude, I read that you started an e-commerce company out of your dorm room selling golf clubs. Did you always want to be an entrepreneur? How did that come up? Yeah. So my kind of quick story is super privileged. My dad was in tech and he was in some big companies in the seventies, digital equipment. If folks knew that it was a big old company. And then he was like a kind of a VP there. And then he went to be CEO of some small companies. Nothing ever became huge, but it provided us a real nice kind of middle-class lifestyle and also gave me the chance to grow up around technology and computers and just chance to kind of do your own thing. And so in college, actually what happened was I was probably going to go do the quote unquote normal post-college work for somewhere. Like I was going to go work in investment banking, but I met a classmate in computer science class and he was a golfer and he had this idea, this is the mid nineties. Hey, there's this new internet thing. Let's see if we can sell golf clubs over the web. He actually started it and then brought me on as co-founder. And then we actually, it was a crazy, crazy thing where we, we then graduated and then we raised venture capital and the company actually took off and we almost went public and but we missed the IPO window, the stock market crashed. We eventually sold it, didn't make any money, but had some great memories. And so that was my first experience, which kind of ruined me for life because I was the first experience not working for anyone else, just working kind of for myself. And therefore I was probably unmanageable going forward. I did work for about five years at a big company at Semantic, like I alluded to, and I had a great time there. But I kind of, at some point figured out I was running a big team and I was like, I want to run my own thing, even though I love the company and all that, but I just want to run my own thing. And so that's sort of been in my mind the entire time is just enjoying leading a team. That's amazing. Well, Nick, thank you so much for joining us. We covered a lot of ground and this was amazing. This was great. You asked some great questions and thanks to all of you for listening as well. On the next episode of Decoding Digital. Data is better than fuel. Fuel just makes something go faster. Data creates this new asset class of things that you can go and create brand new things that are even bigger than the thing that they, where the data came from in the first place. Founder of MuleSoft and expert in APIs and entrepreneurship, Ross Mason. Thanks for listening to Decoding Digital. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast player. To learn more, visit decodingdigital.com. Until next time, 